Welcome, this is American Beauty. I am so thrilled to have here Emily Sokoloff, our voter um, protection, election protection activist, longtime committed election protection activist, and Professors Allison Kanofsky of Cal State University Fullerton. She's in American Studies, and Professor P Pippa Holloway from Middle Tennessee State University, and Professor and Poet Honore Jeffers joining us from the great state of Oklahoma. And I just want to thank you, first of all, for transforming the way I see voting and helping sort of restore a sense of the sacred to it. All of you, you know, um, I think as someone who's done a lot of the cold calling and door knocking as a good citizen does, um, you know, it's easy in the middle of all the data and the middle of going down your long clipboard list of names of people you'll never meet to get a pretty mechanistic and alienated view. And each of you in your own way, we just restored a sense of the richness of voting and that democracy isn't always about the outcome. It's about the doing, right? It's about the actual experience. Mm -hmm. How is everybody feeling heading into the midterms from your particular vantage point? So Emily, are you getting ready, geared up for a system? I mean, for, for a season of election protection activism there in Texas? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I've uh, just gotten back from uh, uh, working in D.C., working in New York, working in Canada, and um, have been able to sort of uh, collect a lot of opinions about what's going on in the United States, very strong ones. Um, uh, interestingly enough, the most relief I had from the, the current electoral nightmare was being right in the belly of the beast in DC where everything seemed, um, somehow people were soldiering on in a way, I guess, um, in, in, in the shadow of what was going on. But coming back to Texas, um, uh, things, you know, it's, it's a strange feeling because there are a lot of candidates running in a lot of the smaller races, which is very encouraging. A lot of incumbents are being challenged. They're races without incumbents. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of get the feeling in this period that um, you're almost, you're swimming against a, a very strong current because you're doing everything that you can, but you have this kind of feeling that um, you just don't know what's going to be enough and what it's going to take and what all these little events that are, um, um, coming together um, signify? What is the Kavanaugh, what does that whole thing signify? What does, um, uh, well, just, you know, the ongoing absurdity of, of, of some of the things that we're seeing coming out of the federal government. Um, so you, you kind of want to uh, close your eyes and kick your heels together and imagine what it's gonna be like after the election. Um, <laughs> and and do whatever you can up to that point to change outcomes, but there is this sort of uh, irreal period where you want to trust humanity and and but are you know you you just kind of you're in that wondering phase. So we're working incredibly hard um, to go to every conceivable event, and I'm going to be at a skateboard park on Friday. I mean, they're just like we're doing all kinds of things, but. Um, you know, it's 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 the scary moment when you know the pedal is about to hit the metal. I love that. Thank you for making a space mm -hmm. for fear, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, I I think um, so many of our narratives about American political life are cast in these like triumph stories, and mm -hmm. the fact is, it's been there have been many scary moments. Sure. 
depending on where you're positioned in relationship to power. Um, And walking through fear without being afraid. I mean, Professor Konofsky, Allison, you know, that was something you really spoke to. Like, we have been, not we, um, portions of the United States citizenship have been convinced that fear is the way to live. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah. I think it's impactful to our democracy massively. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think fear structures day-to-day life in the United States for every population, but different fears, it structures life differently. So the fear of, you know, we talked about um, this kind of fear about people who do not have authorization to be in the United States who are voting illegally. That is one fear that is very powerful. And And that's coming back up. That that came back up in the last few months. Now, one of the standard recitations is so-and-so wants open borders so they can get votes. Right. Absolutely. So like that fear is very prevalent. It's spoken about a lot, but there's also fear that structures life not in that exact same way. Am I going to be, you know, shot when I go down the street if I am just stopped by mm. the police? Am I, is my life going to be prematurely ended by structural violence, by racist violence, right? Like there is actual fear boiling at the surface of people's day-to-day lives. Um, and there's fear, you know, for communities, am I going to be able to continue to put food on the table? Like I think that we really do honestly live in a moment of fear, but we live in a moment where that fear becomes politically useful hmm. for powerful interests that do not have um, much commitment to reducing the kinds of harms that actually are limiting people's day-to-day lives, like their ability to become healthy um, people, their ability to live full lives without having that life reduced prematurely by um, whether it's environmental racism, structural racism, police brutality, whether it's through, you know, gender-based violence, whatever it might be. So like we do live in a moment of fear. And I, I, I like to actually think about what we should be afraid of because there's right. a lot we should be afraid of. Um, but this kind of language about fear and its political utility right now is so narrow. It's such a narrow focus on what we need, who we need to be afraid of and what we need to be afraid of. And I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, I was thinking about Professor Jeffers, you know, just incredible, um, you know, sharing of your life experience and your wisdom about, you know, growing up and seeing the way that despite um, all kinds of reasons to not have faith or despite all kinds of structural um, things put in place to reduce uh, power of a group of people, Mm -hmm. that group of people showing up and having pride and honor and just looking that fear in the face and saying, no, we actually have power here. And that is going to be something that we're going to claim that we're not going to shy away from and that we're going to create this entire culture of love around. And I, I just loved how you talked about that. And what I've been thinking a lot about recently is speaking to my students. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I believe that we all are or have had roles as educators. Um, and one of the things I think about with my students going into this is, so I teach at Cal State Fullerton where the majority of our students are first-generation college students. The majority of our students are students of color. We have a large undocumented 
underrepresented population. And um, most of our students are working class students. And I am trying to think about how to teach these students, how to reach these students to make them feel like they can have faith in the future of this country. And sometimes I do that from a half-hearted faith myself in the future of this mm-hmm. country. Um, but mm-hmm. I am trying to think about how to teach them the, the limitations, the flaws in the democratic experiment because it has never been perfect. It's not just 2016 that it was corrupted. Um, <laughs> while we can, you know, try to make them um, right. think that a vote from, from their perspective actually can be transformative. And that's the space of doubt that I'm in right now is how, mm. how do I, I believe that their votes matter. I believe that their voices matter. And how do I communicate that? when I don't necessarily always feel Mm. the same way myself. (laughs) Thank you for taking it to the honest place. (laughs) Who wants to go first? (laughs) Professor Holloway, we haven't heard you yet. Professor Jeffers, anyone? Well, I'll just speak for a minute about one of the things that's making me really hopeful right now in terms of um, the way our politics and processes are being transformed. And that's the mobilization of teachers and public educators that we saw over the summer. Um, Emily, I don't know if you're wearing red for public ed today or if you're just wearing red, but perhaps you all know that today is National Wear Red for Public Ed Day. And it's a way to celebrate the fact that teachers across America, and especially in some of the states where teachers are most vulnerable to being fired for speaking out, Places like Oklahoma, places like West Virginia, places like North Carolina um, are speaking up, they're speaking out, and they're demanding um, that they be respected as women, respected as leaders in their communities, and respected for the work they do, but also, most importantly, they're doing it for their students, right? Right. Working conditions are your students' learning conditions, and these are people that are transforming politics and and we've seen what happened in the election recently in Oklahoma in terms of um, the the success of people who spoke out um, uh, who spoke for public education and winning some of those primary elections. Um, right. We've seen this begin to transform other elections. And I see, you know, as more people, more different parts of our population step up and say, we're not going to be afraid. You're, we're, you, can, you, you can threaten to fire us, but we've, we're going to do something else. We're going to have our voices heard. We're going to participate in politics. So that's one of the things that's making me really hopeful right now. And it's something that's being led by women. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to, let's go back to, to, I think, Professor Ask Allison, one of the questions you asked is like, how do you, how do you, um, you didn't use this word, but I'll use it. Uh, how do you kind of sell hope, right? When you're, when you're afraid. Um, but I think it's almost, you know, if I think about my own experience, in some respects, that's, um, that approach can be because I was raised to believe in a certain way. And now I have to find a new version of America to believe in. Does that make sense? Like, I can't sell the version I was raised on because yeah. that version was a lie. Mm-hmm. I mean, n- no one meant to lie, but just the accumulation of ideology, the way it influenced the way I was told the American story and what, how I retaught it to myself in grad school, right? To, to mm-hmm. grad school. Right. But I think, but that's, a, that's, you know, that comes from my being raised in a conservative white community. And there are communities that have long experience of living in the brokenness, and yet having yeah. the hope. Professor Jeffers, weigh in. Like, how do you sell the dream or how do you sell the hope when you have so little evidence to offer? Well, I mean, I have a very strange, you know, balancing act because, you know, my parents were professors. And so on the one hand, most of my experience is that of being privileged within my own community. Mm -hmm. But then going outside, 
Can y'all hear me? Yep. Yes. Oh, hello. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of that community, it's always so interesting because I lose whatever privilege I have once I step into a mostly white space. And right now, one of the things that is interesting, you know, you have to, you do have to be very careful in Oklahoma um, teaching at, you know, a, the, you know, I teach at the flagship saying how you feel politically to your students. So I don't really speak on politics overtly. But what I do is because of the work that I'm teaching, poetry, um, early African-American literature, and with, with the theme of resistance, there's always that resonance. And my students are pretty smart. So they can pick up on, okay, well, if this is how black folks were resisting in the 18th and the 19th century, centuries, what does that mean for us now? Um, it's very poignant for me, though, at this point, very emotional, because I do teach more and more um, Latino students, and I teach um, Chicano students. Um, I don't know, you know, sometimes students pass the word around, right? I teach more, more and more LGBTQ students. Um, you know, my classroom is a safe space for them. And so many times they will speak out. And I just sort of allow them to have that space to, you know, say how they're feeling. But I do remember when Trump won um, that Tuesday uh, in November 2016, and then that Wednesday was class. And when I came in, there was weeping in the classroom. And so, you know, you have to be very careful about um, physical contact. So I said, if you feel like you need a hug, I'm going to stand here. And you have to come towards, you got to come towards me to indicate that you want a hug. I can't offer it. And about 11 of them lined up. <laughs> and I just kept, started giving out hugs. Mm -hmm. And they were weeping. And it, it was very hard for me, you know, because I wanted to say something. But at the same time, I'm like, well, I'm a black woman. I have to pay bills. So it's this constant, mm -hmm. you know, balancing act, right? But for me, you know, the one place of freedom that I have to say and speak the truth of what's going on in this country is in my writing um, and my social media press. You know, I, I will speak my mind as a private individual when I don't speak it in the classroom. But I do feel like there are certain things that I do and say and, and, and stand for, even if I'm not making an overt political stance, when I put you know, on my door, uh, a rainbow flag that says y'all means all, you know, so those kids know where I'm coming from, how I stand politically. And many of them, uh, 
secretly follow me on social media. Right. I won't give them, you know, any of my handles or whatever. And then, you know, I'll notice they're retweeting and I'll say later on in the classroom, are you secretly following me? And they just won't say, you know, anything. They'll just start laughing. But it's um, it's a scary time, but I feel it's an exhilarating time. Mm. Um. I haven't felt this kind of electricity in the air since before I was old enough to vote. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. We're at a new place. We we are in a real new place. Yeah. And I'm digging it. (laughs) I mean, because that's the thing. I mean, old stuff is falling away, but some of that, some of those old promises were just not, did not pan out. We're not true. So we have to reimagine what democracy wow. looks like. I, and we have to reclaim from fear the small spaces, right? So your office door, right? Your mm-hmm. social media, your mm-hmm. classroom as appropriate mm-hmm. through your discipline. But like, no, and as places, again, not to be, as places to be unafraid and to model the fearless um, I, exploration of ideas. But I mean, so moving outside of these university settings that are comfortable to most of us in this conversation, I guess my question is to Emily too, you know, and to all of us who work out in the communities, where are the other spaces where people are finding insulation against fear and hope and pushing back? So like Emily, when you're turning, when you're going to the skateboard park and -hmm. you're going to go convince, you know, younger voters, I'm presuming, and um, lots of kids of color skateboard, like alternatively identified kids skateboard. Like when you're asking right. them to dig deep and find the place that is not fear inside of them and to act from that place, wh- what is that place for them? Well, it, it's a shifting place. And I think there's sort of, there's so many battles going on on the semiotic level. I mean, I, I in just referring back to our earlier conversation, Look at the rhetoric at John McCain's funeral. Look at how the ideal of what the American space is supposed to be was projected there. And the things that um, people of every political stripe were sort of taking away from that, the, the emotional reality of his daughter's eulogy, for instance, and this reference to ideals that we're sort of, we, we imbibed on a certain level. There is, a, I guess, a least common denominator. And when you get through all the, is it real news? Is it fake news? Is it all of this other stuff? There is something there um, that when people talk about um, America being great already, um, they're sort uh-huh. of go, going back to this space of something that we all agree upon. So I think that it's an interesting process negotiating that and especially looking for where that exists in the mind of someone who's 17 and 11 months or more who's going to meet me and, um, you know, because I'm another kind of invisible, which is old, you know, I mean, I have gray hair, Uh, I have white hair, let's be frank. So there's this whole (laughs) other thing going on, right? I mean, we have all these... um, sort of interlocking invisibilities. Um, so um, it, it's it's tricky, you know, and I found people, and I think I mentioned this in our discussion, I found a woman who could not be convinced to vote. I was doing get out the vote. I remember this story. I love this story really stayed with me. Well, she was taking down her Halloween decorations and I repeatedly asked her and I didn't go to that place 
where, do you know how long women have been allowed to vote in this country? Do you know how long African-American, because she was African-American, right, right. allowed to vote? I didn't go to that place because, you know, there's there's a kind of a high hoarseness that, right. that, that is just, it's sort of a givenness when you think that voting is a sacred act, which I do, but I also realize that I have the luxury uh, to be that kind of Girl Scout that says, you know, you must do this because it is inherently good. And I don't really believe that about many things. I don't believe that about religion. I don't believe that about patriotism. I don't believe that about a lot of stuff. But I think that, um, you know, it's, people are convinced to do things for all kinds of reasons. I guess what we're trying to do is promote um, a sense of, however creaky and however elitist and however um, ego grinding and racist and all of those things it is that you have to, you have to speak up to it. You have to uh, register something, some, some element of uh, personal opinion, which is the franchise, which is the mandate. And it, it somehow, means that you see yourself as woke and as part of what's going on, you know, I mean, I guess that's Mm -hmm. the least, you know, and, and very often I'll say to people, look, just register. Then you can decide if you want to vote later. You know, I just want you to have that. I don't want you to have the option to later say, because like I worked for years with um, native American, American Indian communities, uh, both in Boston area and in, in the urban Indian environment and in Gallup and, and, and uh, on the Navajo reservation. And those areas are notoriously non-voting communities. I mean, even people that may serve in the armed forces may not vote. Um, so analyzing why, I mean, it, it goes a lot deeper than apathy and, and it goes a lot deeper than just having something else that you need to do, like take down the Halloween decorations. There is a real sense of um, not being included, not being spoken to, not being involved. But I guess the commitment, and I'm sorry for the length of my of my rambling here, is that... No, no, I'm loving it. Until you involve yourself, until you say, yeah, I'm part of whatever the hell this is that voting makes me a part of, because it is ultimately a conservative act. You have to... You have to abide by rules. You have to get to a place at the right time. You have to have the right paperwork with you. You have to present yourself. You probably have to be wearing shoes and a shirt, you know? I mean, so there's a whole range of things that has to happen, right? But it does show a certain level of membership and mm-hmm. identification. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that I becomes... Think- I think that came so clearly across in, in all the conversations I was able to have with you all that outcomes are outcomes, right? But there's something in the act right. that is in itself a message that in itself transforms the person that activates a certain personhood. I mean, we have no control over outcomes, none. Um, well, one of the th- it, it, oh, sorry. No, 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 it's all right. I was going to pull in uh, Professor Holloway Pippa to talk about, you know, I found the narratives so moving from the people who sought re-enfranchisement, um, mm-hmm. who petitioned for it, and helping get at that core spirit of what it is we seek 
or what it is one can claim when they stand up and vote. But I don't want to cut you off, Honoré Professor Jeffers. Right. I always learn yeah, from please you. Please go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. No, you go. no. What what I will say is is that there there is an emotional power, you know, um, to voting. That yes, you know, people can be apathetic. But what I'm noticing now, like, you know, when I was watching snippets, because I, you know, I had to teach on Friday, of that incredibly long but incredibly powerful Aretha Franklin homegoing. Right. And the the whole thing about voting came up at this funeral, okay, Mm -hmm. where, you know, I think it was Jesse Jackson, if I'm not mistaken, you know, he was like, you need to be voting. And then Reverend Al Sharpton was right. like, you need to be voting. And there is this emotional, spiritual power that Black people access when we are, in, when our backs are up against the wall, okay? When we feel like, okay, this is, this is where it, it gets real deep. Mm-hmm. where we will access that emotional, spiritual, and ancestral power. And I think we're in that moment again. Mm-hmm. I really, really feel it so strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll follow up with that with just a second. Um, one of the, over uh, In December, I live pretty close to Alabama. So in December, I went down to Alabama and volunteered on the Doug Jones campaign for a couple weekends. Mm-hmm. And I got to, um, I was working in Northern Alabama doing voter turnout. And I was just so impressed by how many people, for, it was their families. Um, you know, Alabama has some pretty big obstacles to getting registered. Uh, voters were getting purged there, but people were working together. Um, I would knock on doors and they'd say, oh, I've already voted. And I took my mom to vote. I took my brother to vote. Um, you know, I'm calling my husband to make sure he votes on the way home. Um, it was networks. It was personal networks and it was families um, that were, you know, built, working together to get people to the polls, despite the obstacles. Um, and I'll tell a quick personal story, too, which is that I was... Uh, Working in order order than Alabama, um, I'm a fairly non-traditional looking female. Um, I look more or less like a lesbian than I am. And I felt a little vulnerable knocking on doors in rural northern Alabama, trudging literally along cotton fields um, in the middle of nowhere. And so uh, since it was December and it was fairly cold, I decided to dress as an elf. And so I got a little... And in a weird way, I felt sort of protected. Like, who would beat up an elf? You know, and I had a whole narrative I would tell about how, you know, the elves were really supporting Doug Jones. And, you know, we got together and, you know, Santa gave one of us a day off and the rest of them are working overtime so I can come on down to Alabama. And it it helped keep me warm and it helped people help keep people smiling on uh, the day before the election. Well, say, I, okay, fabulous. that is an amazing gift you have given the universe I by telling that story. But I mean, you know, <laughs> and actually bringing it home a little bit because, you know, we're going to keep this conversation, you know, short. I told you I'll keep your half hour, though. I think we could all hang out an entire Friday night <laughs> if we had the opportunity. Um, but, uh, but, you know, Emily, in the descriptions you were giving of the voter booth, what I loved, and this is maybe the, the poetry reader in me, the mm-hmm. literature person in me, was this um, sense of the materiality of voting. I've seen a lot of elections in Mexico and what happens in Mexico is they make a lot of tortilla uh, warming pillow cases, things with the party name on it. And there's all this sort of 
it's this instrumental handout. It's not like hand sanitizer, you know, or the things that are given out in the freebie, like chip clip or something. These are things that are used in daily life, right? And so, and there's music and it, they really kind of figured out how to make the, the political related bling fit very seamlessly into the activities of daily life. But in a way, and I and I when I did election protection in the in the Rust Belt in Bethlehem, there were um, you know we were in a church and they had you know all of these completely outlandish Middle American like baked goods, you know, like these confetti cakes and these all these things that were sort of really, uh, however, is part of what we want to do removing, you know, making it a truly secular, non-denominational experience. Is there something um, to be valued in not multiculting the process? In other words, making it open to everybody so that the atheist wants to vote and the person who um, comes from, like, well, Let's just say you're you're you know Muslim and you walk in and it just has this sort of feeling of a, a sort of a cultural world that may not may be alien to you. So I think there's a, a space in there which we're losing, you know, mm. between the multiculturalism on one side and the jingoism on the other side. We're kind of losing a space where voting, um, in a sense, should be almost as colorless. Because it's, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. So you don't mm-hmm. want to personalize it so much that anyone in this amazing experiment feels like it's not their space. Right. But then how do this we make it warm? You know, how do we make give it the warmth and the care mm-hmm. that, that right. nourishes mm-hmm. us as we do this hard work and as we convince others to hop in? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think that the community, I mean, I keep coming back to this, even though, you know, I have a different relationship to community here out in Oklahoma than I do in my native South, right? Right. But I think that, that you know, having community connected to voting is what personalizes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and ironically and strangely and, and, you know, in an ugly way, that's actually how we got Trump into office was that there was this feeling of community among those folks who voted for him, Mm -hmm. right? And so how do those of us who want an election to turn out a different way, how do we uh, lasso that feeling of community without lassoing the ugliness? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of belonging and the feeling of mattering. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 And, and in a way that for me is not reducible, and I think you made this clear, Emily, in your work, in a way that's not reducible to partisanship. Right. right. You know, I, I just, right. you know, we, we feel like we're at a moment when our partisan affiliations um, are changing and need to change. There's a lot that's happening. Okay, final thoughts, because we're headed into some very interesting times for elections this fall. <laughs> Let's start with you, Professor Konofsky. Allison, you kicked it off with such a powerful, beautiful reflection on 
how facing a classroom with so many first-generation students, working-class students, undocumented kids, what do you say? So what do you come away from this time together figuring that you can say to them? Well, I mean, I think that in some of the suggestions were great. And I, I do try to focus on resistance. It's like, how did people fight for their rights throughout, you know, U.S. history? And usually who's in the executive branch matters. It matters a lot, but changes happen through resistance, through massive amounts of people coming together to try and push for more. So I think that, you know, one thing is to try and look to our history and look to those stories of resilience, which are the stories where we can actually find some hope and that faith in the future. Um, but I also just would say that, you know, a lot of our um, conversation, which has been so helpful and important, has focused on getting people to vote. Um, but one of the things I'm also thinking about is even with how low the voter turnout is, you know, for general elections, even with the fact that so many people are disenfranchised. And I really appreciated Professor Holloway's history on that and how that has been, how criminalization has been a tool of, you know, really keeping people from voicing their opinions through democratic voting processes. Most people, um, you know, I'm thinking about white college educated women voted for Trump. They were not a, a population, and I know that you know voter turnout, even among that category of people, needs to be higher, and I understand that. But part of what I'm really thinking about is how do we have a conversation about the values that were expressed in those who voted in the um, in the election, and the kind of overt and just below the surface uh, white nationalism, white supremacy that is tapped into in conversations like this allusion to making America great again. And so as a teacher, I try to inspire my students um, from where they're coming from to take a grip on that future. And in my research, it's a little grimmer. I mean, it's a little bit more of a story of how these, um, these narratives about um, you know, who belongs in America, who threatens the United States, how that's been racialized and accepted and normalized. And I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to kind of dig up those, um, those foundations of mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. of our history to educate ourselves and to not allow myself, for example, to distance myself from that history, but to understand mm -hmm. the way that that's impacted me. So I'm on, I'm on a journey, you guys, I'm on a journey with my students, but I'm on a journey to understand, you know, my own, um, the communities that I came from and the, the kind of structures of privilege that, have um, have influenced my life and structured my life too. Mm -hmm. I'll follow up on that a bit by pulling again a little back from the, the specific question of voting into this bigger question of dialogue and discussion. Um, I'm actually speaking to you here from my office in the Middle Tennessee State University Faculty Senate where I'm president of the Faculty Senate this year. Um, and as a, as a Faculty Senate president, I'm someone that pushes and has engaged with issues of academic freedom and tenure um, and the ability of faculty members to um, discuss um, real world issues in the classroom um, and to understand um, the limits, but also the, the power of that. Um, and also that our role as academics, as leaders of disciplines, um, people talk a lot about discipline in this world, but we're from academic disciplines that have the, their own rules, their own understandings um, and methods of uh, ascertaining truth, of um, establishing authority and knowledge. And so, you know, in this world of, you know, people that claim to, you know, the, the fake facts, the fake news, um, 
for us as academics and particularly again as women in academia to um, utilize these as spaces of knowledge, of authority, and also of dialogue and communication, right? Our students are a tremendously diverse population from tremendously diverse backgrounds. Let's sit down in a classroom. Let's talk about what we agree about, what we disagree about. Let me um, explain, you know, utilize my academic training to explain certain realities to you in American history and for all of you other um, academics to do that. So, you know, from my perspective, um, seeing academia as a place that we can um, do this kind of communication where we have um, the protections of academic freedom and tenure, um, and we have organizations like the American Association of University Professors, which advocates for us, um, and we see in the news very often when faculty members get into trouble um, with, with when they say unpopular things and how our academic freedom is protected, and we all you know, need to keep on working for those, those kind of issues. If I can just underscore, too, like one thing I don't want ever to be lost is the fact what you said, we, we do it from a disciplinary standpoint. You know, this is not just free expression. This is carefully disciplined, carefully developed knowledge and skills that we share and that we offer um, and that are needed, that are needed in the public conversation. Yeah. Um, okay. Emily, what are you what are you looking at this fall? Well, um, you know, it's interesting to hear um by the way, are you going to edit some of this rambling or are we just, uh, this is all live. I just, I just need to know. <laughs> um, Cause I feel like, I, I feel like I'm, I, I'm a circular speaker and sometimes it takes me a little a while to arrive at the target. I wonder how much. I'll, I'll edit, out. I'll edit that little part out. Um, I think, I think you talking through the, I think you talking through the process is actually really good. I mean, okay. thinking out loud is welcome in my world. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm an intellectual, and the area that I, I although my area is Mexican culture, um, I'm writing a, a book now on something to do with the um, the Red Scare and the Second Cold War in the United States. So, the attitude toward political resistance, the attitude toward government, the attitude toward um, intelligence systems, and all of these things to do with surveillance are things that are very prevalent in my mind, but. Um, on a certain level, for me, this is a question about our basic humanism. Um, if we could sort of place that, not necessarily within a disciplinary constraint, but in a sort of, um, um, you know, for me, there are sort of a lot of moral issues at stake and human goodness and human de decency. Um, and I think that's, in a sense, the denominator that I'm going for, um, certainly being in Texas. And, you know, I work every week at the family detention centers on the border where the asylum seekers are being held. Um, and I think that what's at question here in many ways, and the biggest issues for me are deeply moral ones. And sort of the, you know, we talk about our better selves um, and the, the sort of basic humanity or, or lack thereof that are, that is being displayed. And I think that there's nothing less than that that's sort of at stake. So those are, those are the issues that are for me the most transcendent at this, at this point. Um, are we going to be, um, you know, when, when I try to convince people in terms of utilizing the franchise, it really has to do with our legacy and our um, our behavior as as human beings, um, and I think that can't be lost. Um, 
And I think that's that's what is being um, indexed in all of these discussions. Um, who who are we, and what are our basic values? And if is is it acceptable for us to to see to have racism as something that's legislated again? Um, you know, aside we, we we can look at the history of these things, and we can you know see that we've been through some utterly disastrous times in our past. Um, but you know, we're reaching some new levels here, and I think that that is ultimately. Um, the central argument for me and the central motivator for me to want to see change. Um, uh, so that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm taking um, as my sort of motivation for the work that I do. Mm -hmm. All right, Professor Jeffers. Well, um, I'm approaching this, you know, as as someone who's a faithful person, right? Um, and that's not to say that there aren't uh, folks who have already spoken here who are. I'm just saying, you know, as someone who, um, you know, comes from folks who tend to be faithful, you know, my Angelou used to joke that there were only two black atheists in the world. And... Um, <laughs> So I think I think that, you know, as someone who prays and as someone who's very faithful about um, and hopeful about the world, I approach it, you know, that way. Um, and and just just looking at, you know, not just the history of black folks in this country, but the history of how this country began, even with all of its work that, you know, no revolution ever occurred without difficulty. Um, and I think that we are indeed in a revolutionary moment. Um, it, it's difficult to see our way out of it right now because we are in the middle of it. You know, I think that history will look back on this moment and be able to tell us you know, what was happening. But for right now, we're in a lot of pain. But I am faithful that we will get through this. And, you know, because of the fact that my people and, you know, I'm also of indigenous heritage, there, you know, there, there have been horrible times, but we are still here and we are still standing. Mm -hmm. And so I feel and surviving and many of us are thriving despite our difficulties. And so I feel like, um, you know, if I may be so bold, to say that, you know, my white liberal brethren and sisters need to take lessons from that. You yeah. know, this is a difficult time for them as well. And so it is time for them to, to try to learn the lessons that we have learned. Yep. That you hunker down and that you stay in prayer and that faith without work is dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's time to work, right? And build our resilience and understand how to walk through failure right. and not, not know that what the outcome will be. But know that like right. you have your life, your life is your vote, right? How you spend your energy, how you direct mm -hmm. your will, that's the mark you will leave. Yeah. 
Right. I, I hear you. Absolutely. Thank, thank you for those words, those positive words. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you all. Thank you, my sister. Thank you. Um, that was Thank wonderful. You. I wish we had uh, more time and maybe a couple beers. We could have a little bit. <laughs> only, oh, only, only if you wear the elf outfit, Professor. Holland. <laughs> only. The deal. I know. I would love to see a picture there. <laughs> okay, Absolutely. you guys. Thank you so much this time, all of you. And thank you um, to everyone who's listened to us. I appreciate you guys. Thanks. Okay. Take care, y'all. Thank, thank you, you all so much. Thank Bye. you, Joanna. Thanks for the project. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the Bye. project. Thank you, Joanna. <laughs>